Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And this is New Tricks for Old Dogs. Our podcast features the many ways us older folks howl at the moon, odd news items you don't normally hear about, and conversations with other old dogs who are growing bolder, not older. So if you got 25 minutes or so, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the old dogs ramble about passing along our infinite wisdom to our heirs. We share fascinating and relevant information about the role of older elephants, We warn you about the dangers of overzealous fly-swatting. We study the new social phenomenon of walk-tailing. We tell the tale of a retired cop who finally got his man. And we mourn the passing of one of our boyhood heroines, Diana Rick. The Old Dog's Conversation is with David Henry, an international authority on what's going on in the wild lands above the Arctic Circle. Stay with us. Well, Paul, tell yeah, me, what yeah. is on your mind today? You know, we had a piece in today's episode about how elephants hand off knowledge to the younger generation of elephants and started me thinking, um, is that one of our purposes in life? Should we be handing off knowledge? To elephants? To other elephants? No, no, Jim, to our grandkids. Oh, Oh, you know, should right. we should we not be so self-conscious about telling stories about our youth and the kinds of things we encountered in society? I would love to be able to pass on what little I remember of the past <laughs> and my experiences in it. I don't feel self-conscious about it necessarily. I feel like nobody's listening. Well, that's self-conscious in a way. It's, <laughs> it's like you, you're imagining the kids rolling their eyes as, yes. you, as you talk about yes, I what do. college was like in my day. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. You know, but I think young people growing up should have a sense of history, how things have changed, mm-hmm. and uh, particularly how terrible their lives <laughs> are and how great ours used to be. Yeah, right. And I suppose that that has been true of every generation as long as there have been generations I feel like there is a certain time and place for even grandparents to even be able to uh, discuss past history with our grandkids. What do you you mean? Well, I think that at one point our grandkids are too young to care or too young to even understand that we have a history. That's a better point, yeah. And uh, yet if if we wait too long, they maybe get on with their own lives and uh, forget about the possibility of having that connection. And I think maybe the secret is to tell stories. And so if if what we are sharing is in the form of a story, and if we kind of solicit their thoughts about it, uh, that there may be some conveying of information that can be done in a harmless way. Okay, I can appreciate that. But tell me this, how do you introduce a story? I mean, if you wait for them to say, Grandpa, tell us a story about when you were young, right? Or do you say, listen, kids, I want to tell you a story about what, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. How well, do, you it, do has that? To, it has to be like situationally appropriate. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm assuming that something will have happened that has impacted your grandchildren. Uh, a judgment about their parents, perhaps, or something that happened at school that opens a door for you to tell a story Yeah, about how you experienced a similar thing or how you handled it uh, or how you didn't handle it. So stepping back to uh, a prior level, how do we build relationship with our grandkids? I, I see your point. Yeah, you do have to have a comfort level 
chatting yeah. with your grandchildren for that thing to work. Although another thing that we, I think we have heard about and maybe even experienced, for those who are self-conscious about sitting down and having an intimate conversation with your grandkids, consider writing it down. Or video? What do you think? Well, everybody has to find their own way of passing along something to their descendants. So, How about their inheritance? Yeah. Do a treasure hunt. <laughs> okay. Yes, a, a huge sum of money is uh, hidden somewhere in Houston. You'll get clues every, every year. Or in the world. Why, why just stop with the world? <laughs> Here's some information that may be comforting to us older males who wonder if we have a purpose in the herd. This pod nugget is from the New York Times for September 4th, 2020. Scientists have generally considered female elephants to be the leaders. Old males were seen as loners whose social contribution ended at breeding. New research indicates that older male elephants may act as leaders for the younger ones. One example is when young orphaned males were introduced into a park in South Africa. They exhibited aggressive behavior socially and sexually. When the females rejected the young elephants' advances, they took out their aggression on white rhinos, killing more than 40. When six older males were introduced into the park, the aggressive behavior and the rhino killing stopped. The researchers also observed that adolescent males almost always traveled with other males, and that the older bulls were more likely to be found at the head of the line. And they also found that male elephants of all ages preferred to have the oldest males as their closest neighbor, possibly because of opportunities to learn. This suggested that older elephants convey crucial knowledge, uh, such as where to find water in a drought or how to evade poachers. Okay, now we're getting to the point. Perhaps our purpose in the herd is to share our experiences and knowledge with our grandchildren and maybe help them temper their youthful enthusiasm and imperfect judgment with our stories about what we have learned in life. Well, it's a nice thought and a good purpose before we head to the elephant graveyard. The what? Elephant graveyard. I had to continue the metaphor. <laughs> Here's something more to worry about from our something more to worry about file. This item comes from Sky News for September 7th, 2020. A man in his 80s in France was eating his dinner when a fly started buzzing around him. Well, we all know how irritating that can be. Luckily, he had a solution. An electronic fly swatter. In case you aren't aware of this appliance, it resembles a tennis racket. The face is a large conductive surface powered by batteries, and when the swatter comes in contact with an insect, bzzz, it is burned by the current. <laughs> so the gentleman picked up his electronic fly swatter and took aim at the pesky fly. The insect's chances for a normal lifespan were minuscule, but... As he swung, there was a big explosion. The man was unaware of a leaking gas cylinder in his home. The spark from the swatter caused an explosion that damaged his kitchen, a part of his roof, and rendered the house uninhabitable. Now, fortunately, the man escaped the catastrophe with just a minor burn to his hand. Meanwhile, he's residing at a local campsite while his house is being repaired. It is unknown what happened to the fly. Some people have been coping with the coronavirus by taking a walk in the neighborhood with a cocktail. Some might call it a walktail. 
This item is from the New York Times for May 20th, 2020. With both bars and many gyms closed, what is a sane person to do if they want to exercise and have a drink? They take a walk in the neighborhood with a drink in one hand and maybe the dog in the other. It's not legal in most cities to walk down the street with an open container. But given the times, police have chosen to make this offense a low priority. Even the Big Easy in New Orleans has made drinking and walking even easier by selling masks (laughs) with straw holes. Texas has a long history of a walktail culture. As one resident of Austin said, Alcohol does a lot of things for us. It lets off steam. It's a stress reliever. It lightens the mood. A liquor store owner in Washington State said, We're sold out of everything. People are taking advantage of this moment by breaking all the rules that they won't be able to break in the future. Walktailing would absolutely fit into that category. People are drinking starting at noon. It really is the end of the world as we know it, and we are going to feel fine. I guess it does no harm, unless you find yourself walking with a cocktail too often, in which case you may have a problem with walkaholism. If that is an issue for you, you may want to cut back on the walking. Yeah, I could do that. It took nearly 50 years. But a retired cop finally tracked down the man who shot him while on duty. This item is from the New York Times for August 9, 2020. It was October 1971, and a Denver patrolman named Daryl Cinquanta stopped a car that looked suspicious. The driver was an escaped convict named Luis Archuleta. The officer asked the driver to get out of the car. As they were walking, Archuleta pulled a gun and shot the patrolman in the stomach. He then fled the scene. A few months later, Archuleta was arrested in Mexico on drug charges. He was extradited and convicted of shooting the patrolman. He was sentenced to 14 years in prison. This should be where our story ends, but 14 months later, Archuleta escaped while being taken to a medical appointment. This time, he remained at large. About 20 years after the shooting... Cinquenta retired from the police force and started a detective agency, but he never quit looking for the man that shot him. Cinquenta said, I tell people it was like a hobby. Well, I mean, it kind of was. He shot me, he was dangerous, and he was still out there. He spent years calling contacts, hoping to develop leads in locating Archuleta. Finally, in June of this year, he got an anonymous tip that Archuleta was living under an alias at an address near Santa Fe, New Mexico. He turned the information over to the FBI, who arrested Archuleta, who was now 77 years old. And this is where the story finally ends. This was kind of a reverse Les Miserables, only instead of the bad guy hunting down the good guy for stealing bread, it was the good guy hunting down the bad guy for shooting the good guy in the bread basket. Well, Mm. you get what I mean, Jim. Diana Rigg, the classically trained English actress who took over the role of Emma Peel, the leather-clad private eye on the TV series The Avengers, died at the age of 82. This pod nugget is from the Washington Post for September 10th, 2020. 
Diana Rigg had spent several years developing her craft as a member of the Royal Shakespeare Company. Performing live in front of an audience was her first love. She would often return to the stage between her television and film commitments. In 1965, at the age of 26, she replaced Honor Blackman in the role of Emma Peel on the British TV show The Avengers. She only appeared on the show for three seasons, but it made her a worldwide celebrity. She overshadowed her co-star Patrick McNee as a stylish, powerful, and independent woman. Although the show was a piece of fluff, Emma Peel was a tough character who carried a gun and knocked out villains with karate chops. She drove a sports car and a motor scooter with her co-star riding on the back. (laughs) More than 30 years later, the readers of TV Guide voted her the sexiest TV star of all time. The Avengers was just the starting point of a celebrated career as an actress on stage, in films, and on television. In recent years, she appeared as Lady Oleana Tyrell in the HBO series Game of Thrones. However, we choose to remember her as Emma Peel, the sexy, confident private eye wearing the mod fashions of London's Carnaby Street and an occasional bikini. As Diana Rigg explained in 1990, Emma Peel was special for those times because she seemed unobtainable. She was exciting. She was a new kind of a woman who could stand up to a man. (laughs) Oh, yes, we remember. You bet we do. David Henry has spent more than 50 years studying the fauna and flora of the boreal forest. That is, those far-off lands where humans seldom tread above the civilized areas of Canada. He tells us what he's accomplished up there and why up there may not be exactly there much longer. David, we'd like to begin by just asking you if you can briefly tell us what led you to explore a degree at the Harvard School of Forestry. Well, I, I've had a fascination with uh, the undisturbed, completely natural forests or ecosystems. Um, the Harvard forest, what appealed to me, they were oriented towards uh, natural science. I looked at other, some other schools to do a master's in forest science and things, but it was uh, oriented towards commercial forestry. Um, but the Harvard Forest was more a research station, and that was the great attraction, and it was a great place. So what was the next step after forestry school? We moved west, and we became uh, teachers at an Indian school, an Indian high school on uh, the Cheyenne Reservation. Well, then we moved to uh, Missoula, Montana. We were pretty uh, fascinated with the West. The wildlife had a a lot to do with it, you know. At the Harvard Forest, I I really wanted to study wildlife. And they said, it's just not going to work out. Our animals are not observable. And they were right. But we got out West in, in Montana and Wyoming, and there were wild animals there that you could watch and you could watch for hours and that just turned my crank so that was exactly what i i wanted to be about i had a master's degree from harvard but i decided i wanted to get a phd degree in um, animal behavior i applied around and i got a very nice offer from the university of calgary so we moved to canada and that was in 1970 and uh, we've been here ever since so Wyoming, Montana, Calgary, do you have a cowboy thing going on? 
Well, you know, um, as it turns out, Calgary is pretty far south of where you ended up, which is like uh, above the Arctic Circle. How did you end up there? Well, I started working for the Canadian Wildlife Service, and that took me pretty far north, up into uh, the Northwest Territories and to Nahani National Park, which was even more remote, even more natural and undisturbed. Nahani was a new national park, and um, Parks Canada was just trying to kind of plan out the, the park. And so um, both of those summers, I was doing a biophysical inventory in that park, and it, it was wonderful. It was just completely natural. Now, what kind of adjustments did you have to make uh, to become essentially a Canadian citizen? You know, the medicine up here is kind of socialized medicine. It's uh, available to everybody. And so we had to get used to that. That was pretty easy to get used to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, David, you know, the war is over. You can come back. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're allowed back in the country, so we can. But not now. You know, the border is closed. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So we don't go down there, but uh, sure, we're still connected to the U.S., you know, with uh, relatives and, and things. Right. David, you are considered a top authority on the wildlife of the far north, uh, especially, for example, the Red Fox. You have a book that was published by the Smithsonian called uh, Red Fox, the Cat-Like Canine. You've seen changes that I believe you have found rather distressing. I can imagine you would be a good authority on what is happening and where things are going up there. I have my opinions and I have my experiences. Um, You're getting close to another one of my great fascinations, and that's uh, you can go to a national park and you can observe wildlife, uh, elk, deer, wolves, foxes, coyotes, uh, wonderful bird life. You can observe these creatures, and they are living their undisturbed life in that park. And you can observe just special moments in the animal's life. If you, you know, act without disturbing them, and they get used to you, and they go about their life, and they let you observe it, you can just see very special moments in their life that, to me, are just treasures, are just incredible things that I remember. And it can be a group of white pelicans that are herding the fish towards shore. And if they can get them close enough to shore, then they go after them to, as their food. But they work together just like a group of fishermen, just move, slowly moving those fish into shore. Wow. Or you might see a beaver in late fall. Give it another, maybe another month. The male beavers will be packing their lodge with mud to build up the insulation of the lodge for the boreal winter coming. And they're insulating their lodge. It's just, to me, it's just an incredible thing to, to watch. Um, and to watch them where they aren't alarmed by me, they couldn't give a damn about me, I'm just a, a shadow in the forest. That's been the source of the five books that I've written. Okay, David, so give us your take on global warming. You have been up in an area of the world that is especially fragile, 
especially vulnerable to global warming. What have you observed and what are you most concerned about? I think the, uh, the melting of the Arctic Ocean is a huge impact on the North and how it's going to affect the weather of Canada, nobody knows. So the Arctic Ocean is frozen, but because of climate change, now I would say starting about sometime in July and lasting in through September, 40% of the Arctic Ocean is melting. And then it refreezes uh, as you move into Arctic winter. That's a huge change in the weather of the Arctic. The Canadian Arctic is warming at twice the rate that the rest of the country is warming. And there's no doubt that the Arctic Ocean is going to be completely ice-free in 10 years, something like that. I mean, the, it, it's, the amount that it's melting is just expanding so much and so rapidly that there's no question that there's going to be a, an ice-free Arctic Ocean um, sometime soon. And the question is, how is that going to affect the, the weather in the Arctic, but also the weather in the rest of Canada, certainly the Western Canada, and into the United States? You know, it's probably going to lead to a much hotter climate. And the plains part of Saskatchewan, just like Alberta, the southern half of the of each of those provinces are the, the breadbasket of Canada. That's where the major wheat and rye and other grains and also corn are grown. But is that going to make a much drier climate for the southern Saskatchewan, southern Alberta? And then the threat of fires. And I don't have to tell you about, you know, the threat of fires. Right. But we're, we're experiencing that in British Columbia, in, in Alberta. Is the, the opening up of the Arctic Ocean going to lead to much drier, much hotter climate? We don't know, but it doesn't look good. And that's just the start of it, Jim, you know. Uh, what about the indigenous people, the Inuit? How, how are they handling this change? Well, that's a very complicated question. And uh, there's no one easy answer. But they, uh, they are representing themselves well. And they are in favor of, of some of it. And they, they are very worried about the lack of uh, solid ice, which allows them to go hunting out on the, uh, the frozen Arctic Ocean to hunt for seals or to hunt for whales or to hunt for uh, other animals. It's really wreaking havoc there. And uh, as you know, I mean, a lot of people are really wondering if uh, polar bears are going to be able to survive. Um, because the way they support themselves all winter long and, and all of spring is they hunt seals on the pack ice where the Arctic Ocean is frozen. They go out on that and they hunt seals. Is it too late now? Is there anything that can be done or is being done to alleviate this? You know, the, the raising of uh, the level of the oceans is uh, one of the toughest problems to address. But... Other effects of climate change, um, yes, we could. I, I, one of the most hopeful things is the expansion of uh, solar-generated electricity and the wind turbines and the potential of what that could do for lowering the amount of uh, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. It's great potential. 
David, looking back on your life, all that you have done, all that you have seen, what is your philosophy of life? Well, I think uh, your religious belief is important. I think uh, that uh, working through what you think about that, you know, is uh, really important for your, your mental health, just to come at peace with what you feel. And uh, I would say, Jim, that uh, devote yourself to causes and try and make a contribution or to experiences and try and work for that, you know, work for a national park that needs to be expanded or a national park that the federal government is selling off a quarter of it for oil exploration and resist that. Have those experiences, cherish them, write about them, raise hell and try and do something about it. Like what you've been hearing? How about sharing the joy with your friends? We can always use more listeners. All our episodes are available on our website, www.olddogspodcast.com. And there are a lot more episodes on the way, so stay tuned and keep howling at the moon.